Good afternoon, listeners. This is the DOPS program. The Australian Council for Defensive Government Schools have been around since the 60s, actually, but um, we're here to defend and promote public education, and we're still doing it. And thanks to 3CR. We've got a fairly full program, so we'll get on with it. Uh, Ross Gittins has been writing a very interesting article in the Fairfax Press entitled Identity Politics is Destroying Our Public Schools. And Dale is going to read it to us. Over to you, Dale. Thank you, Jean. Yes, we've got a great article here by Ross Gittins titled Identity Politics is Destroying Our Public Schools. When one of the most privileged and oldest private schools in Australia, the King's School, home to the scions of the squatocracy, has to be ordered by the New South Wales government not to spend public money on a plunge pool at its headmaster's residence, that's when you know there's something very wrong with the way federal and state governments are dividing their funding between public and private schools. It's a system where the less government help a school needs, the more it's given. And the more a school needs, the more likely it won't be given enough. Although the famous Gonski report of 2011 recommended that government funding of schools be based on the assessed needs of their mix of students, more than a decade later, that has not happened. Why not? Partly because, unlike most other English-speaking countries, Australia has allowed the mainstream Christian churches to play a big role in the provision of primary and secondary education. They had schools before the government decided to introduce compulsory sc public schooling and were allowed to keep running them. To this day, they're allowed to provide religious instruction in public schools where, despite our growing lack of religiosity, the churches fight against ethics classes being offered as an alternative. Led by the Catholics, the private schools fought to stop the Gonski reforms, reducing their funding and control over how it was spent. Anachronistically, our politicians remain wary of getting offside with the church vote. But the other reason for the backsliding on Gonski is the much earlier decision of the, of the Howard government to make parents' choice of school, not student need, the highest priority for government funding. John Howard got the states to license many new private schools, most of them with some religious affiliation. This has changed the nature of Australian schooling in a way few people have noticed. Have you heard of identity politics? It's the modern tendency for voters to think of themselves not just as Australians or even Labor or Liberal, but as part of an ethnic, religious or gender preference group. There was a time when almost everyone was educated at the local public or parish school. At school, you learnt to get along with people from many different social classes and backgrounds. These days, only a small majority of students go to public schools and it's now common for Jewish kids to go to Jewish schools, Muslim to Muslim schools, Evangelical Protestants to Christian schools and so forth. Sorry, this may be what many parents 
choose for their offspring, but I'm not sure if it'll be good for national tolerance and social cohesion. Just as bad, it's happening at the expense of public schools, left with too few resources to do justice to the more than 80% of the nation's disadvantaged students, those of the lowest socioeconomic status, Indigenous and the outback, not to mention the misbehaving kids expelled from private schools. Private schools can and do say no to kids with problems, but public schools can't. According to official figures collated by Trevor Cobold of Save Our Schools, our public schools, combined annual federal and state funding grew by more than $2,800 per independent school student over the nine years to 2020 after allowing for inflation. That compares with increases of almost 2,500 per Catholic school student and just $830 a year per public school student. Across Australia this year, combined government funding is estimated to have provided private schools, Catholic plus independent, with 106% of the Gonski-inspired, officially calculated schooling resource standard, the SRS, needed to meet the particular needs of their students. Public schools will get just 87% of what they need. Add huge tuition fees and you see why long-established independent schools have far more income than they need just to run the school. Many have never-ending construction programs moving around and round the cramped school campus, tearing things down and building new indoor swimming centres, music and drama centres, auditoriums and sporting facilities. Casual observation suggests that independent schools get better academic results than Catholic schools and particularly public schools. But many studies show once you allow for the socioeconomic status of the student's parents, independent and Catholic schools do no better than public schools. If governments keep overfunding private schools and underfunding public schools, however, a lot more parents will feel they need to pay up so they can move their kids to private, leaving public schools with a much higher proportion of disadvantaged students that they are inadequately resourced to help. It doesn't sound like a road we should want to travel. After coming to office last year, the Albanese government postponed any changes to federal funding of schools for a year so an expert panel could report on the National Schools Reform Agreement, the agreement between the feds and the states on school funding. The panel's report is due this month. But even if it rec recommends big reforms, you wouldn't be sure this bruised and battered government would be up for the fight with privileged schools and their parents. And that was from Ross Gittins. It's very true. Back to you, Jean. Well, that was very interesting, wasn't it? Uh, that uh, pool at King's School has caused a bit of uh, a ruffle up there in uh, New South Wales anyway, but we'll have a bit of a break. And then Andy has got something. He's been doing some research over in Western Australia and we've got something interesting from there for you. It's all about a voice in our own country. We've got a reason for screaming out, where's our voice in this country? You know, not that I want to be a part of the Constitution for that, you know. That's why 3CR is so important to, to me and this community here. We've got a voice, but it's not... You know, we're entitled to a bigger voice than what we've got, but it's all about having a voice. 
Subscribe to 3CR, fiercely independent and community controlled. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond, we'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR 855 AM digital and 3cr.org.au. Yes, well, Andy's been doing some research, as we said, over there in Western Australia. And Western Australia uh, thinks that everything private is great. So they have tried... Uh, an experiment in public education. Uh, an experiment is so-called independent public schools, which are autonomous. Uh, now, the West Australia Teachers Union Review has called for regulation of these schools and uh, more regulation, and they've also called into question the NAPLAN tests. They reckon they should be scrapped. So let's hear from Andy with the Western Australian News. Over to you, Andy. Thanks, Jean. Western Australia's Teachers' Union Review calls for NAPLAN to be scrapped, more regulation on independent schools. NAPLAN should be scrapped, independent schools more tightly regulated, and classes that include students with special needs should be reduced in size, a review commissioned by the Western Australian Teachers' Union has found. The Western Australia's Teachers' Union commissioned a report into the state's public education system. The report was led by former WA Premier Carmen Lawrence. It called for NAPLAN to be scrapped and a review into independent schools. The review, chaired by former Premier Carmen Lawrence, aimed to assess the state of public education in WA following major changes over the past 10 years. Dr Lawrence said teachers were being asked to do more with less. There's been a sort of cumulative impact of policy changes that often haven't been supported, Dr Lawrence said. The professional education is not there, the local support is not there. She said the result was staff getting churned through the system and a lack of equality and access to quality education in the state. The review was led by former Premier Carmen Lawrence. The panel's report found the independent public school model was not improving student outcomes and had amplified growing inequality in the WA education system. It also raised concerns that while the independent school system empowered schools to choose who they hired, it had led to difficulties in staffing regional and remote schools and produced inequality in terms of which schools could secure senior, experienced teachers. The report recommended a thorough review and annual audit of independent schools spending over concerns they were not currently accountable. NAPLAN falling short. The panel also found the National Assessment Program Literacy and Numeracy, NAPLAN, introduced in 2008, had not resulted in any sustained improvements in educational outcomes or reducing inequality. 
The results from a brand new NAPLAN system are in, but the report card shows some familiar trends. One in three school students throughout Australia are not meeting minimum numeracy and literacy expectations, and one in ten are so far behind they need additional support, new NAPLAN data shows. The benefits for teachers from NAPLAN have not materialised, and many have experienced increased workload and a loss of professional standing as a result, the report said. Individual national testing has narrowed the curriculum for children, while teachers spend more classroom time teaching to the test. The panel recommended scrapping NAPLAN in favour of the internationally recognised Program for International Student Assessment, PISA, testing less frequently and not publicly identifying schools in their results. It also found the extension of compulsory schooling and vocational education past year 10 was not adequately funded to meet student needs, while the real amount of money spent on each student had declined in public schools over the past decade and increased in the private system. Concentration of disadvantage. It also noted feedback from teachers who said funding needed to be significantly increased for children with developmental, behavioural or mental health issues in the mainstream system to support smaller class sizes. What we found is that there's a concentration of disadvantage in some schools and the resources are just not available. Financial as well, the distribution of funds are not commensurate to the problems teachers face, Dr Lawrence said. Carmen Lawrence says policy changes have eroded the quality of public education system. The panel recommended the WA government develop and fund a dedicated cross-portfolio service to support these students, along with guidelines for making decisions on their optimum placement. It also found teachers were not being provided adequate resources to develop and implement meaningful, individually tailored plans for students with special education and behavioural needs. Have independent public schools delivered? Some parents and teachers in WA say the independent public schools program has created higher workloads. It called for the WA Education Department to clearly define what such plans should entail and find ways for teachers to get enough time to manage the additional workload. An example was by having students requiring documented plans as counting for two or three students when determining class size, thereby reducing numbers of students in the class. The switch of Year 7s to high school had resulted in increased costs, staff dislocation and additional workloads, but the benefits had not been established. It broadly called for a reduction in class sizes, saying they were higher in WA than in other states, and asked for teachers to have to do less administrative paperwork. It also recommended employing experienced teachers to run small group tutoring for disadvantaged students. The needs of Indigenous students were also not being met, despite a myriad of often expensive programs that are frequently introduced without rigorous evaluation or consultation. ATAR completion rates in Western Australia were significantly lower than the national average and are declining. Back to you, Jean. Well, thank you, Andy. That was very interesting material that you found there for us. Uh, But we'll have a bit of a break now and then we'll come back to Kim, who's going to tell us about a plan to tax international students. Uh, That might might, uh, interest quite a few of our older, or should I say younger listeners. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we We are are from from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Yeah, <laughs> 
Join me, Aya Cry with Ubuntu Voices, Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. on 3CR. Ubuntu is a Zulu word, meaning I am here because you are. Ubuntu celebrates the positive contribution African Australians make to our communities in music, academia, the arts, and everything in between. Come with me on a journey. Ubuntu Voices, every Wednesday at 8.30 p.m. None of us are free. One of us is chained. None of us are free. Well, we hope you're still listening to the Dogs Program. And here is Kim. She hasn't been with us for a while, but she's back with her dulcet tones to tell us about the plan to tax international students and why some people think it's needed. Over to you, Kim. Thank you, Jean. Uh, So this article is called What's the Plan to Tax International Students and Why Is It Needed? It was written by Caitlin Cassidy from The Guardian on the 2nd of November 2023. The impost should be a sovereign wealth fund to help fund research, but opponents say it will damage Australia's reputation and cause hardship. International students say a proposed levy on their studies could cause major damage to Australia's reputation and cement the idea individuals are used as cash cows for profit. The levy proposal, which would impose an export tax on international students, was raised in the university's Accord Interim Report as a means to address calls for increased funding towards research and infrastructure. With the final report due to be handed down next month, here's what you need to know about why the proposal has divided the sector. What is the levy? The Educational Minister, Jason Clare, has described the proposed levy as a sovereign wealth fund that could protect the sector from future economic shocks and fund priority areas. The idea, akin to a GST on education, has been backed by institutions including the University of Newcastle, the University of Technology Sydney and James Cook University. Speaking on ABC's afternoon briefing on Tuesday, Clare said the levy was one of about 70 ideas in the interim report released in July. There's no magic money tree here, and so we've got to look at how we do it, and this is just one of the ideas in that report, he said. How would it work? Two levies already exist on international students, relatively small sums to fund specific government services that support international students and providers. What's different about this levy is the fee stream would be much higher, and it's less clear how international students would benefit. Instead, it would collect funds from institutions that receive large incomes from international student fees and redistribute it to those that don't. Why has it been called for? Australia's universities have become increasingly reliant on cross-subsiding revenue with international student fees, with government expenditure on research and development among the lowest in the OECD. The University of Sydney received 38% of its income, or around $1.3 billion, from international students in 2021. In its submission to the Accord, the University of Newcastle argued the redistribution of funds was justified as international student income is Australia's third largest export, contributing nearly 30% of sector revenue in 2019. However, it is primarily focused in capital cities. The top five universities for international revenue are all prestigious group of eight, 
or GO8 institutions in major cities, while the bottom five are all regional. The Greens say the levy is an excuse for the federal government to avoid increasing funding across the board. The party's education spokesperson, Miran Faruqi, said forcing international students to do the heavy lifting on higher education funding must end. The government must properly fund our universities, not deter or punish students from studying here. What are the dangers? Policy experts have warned the levy poses a major risk of reputational damage to the sector that would seriously undermine diplomatic achievements and dissuade international students from studying in Australia. A report published by the Melbourne Centre for the Study of Higher Education said the levy would exacerbate negative sentiments among international students that they are seen as cash cows. The Property Council of Australia... Student Accommodation Council, the Australian Business Deans Council, Queensland University of Technology and the GO8 universities have similarly expressed their concern it would damage Australia's reputation as an international student destination. Australia also already collects a large amount of revenue from the international student sector, including more than $2.6 billion per year on post-study work visas alone. At the same time, international students and post-study work visa holders are ineligible for most public services, including healthcare, welfare and concession cards. Willem Croucher, a higher academic researcher at the University of Melbourne and co-author of the report, said Australia had to be careful about what signals it sent international students. The decision to study overseas is not taken lightly. If we want to welcome them, we must be welcoming, he said. It would be a big change in the way we do things, and the devil is in the detail. In the short term, we may end up finding we have to reduce things, including the size of the workforce. There might not be anything else internationally that looks like it. What do students think? International students have voiced strong opposition to the levy. In an open letter, the Sydney University Postgraduate Representative Association, or SUPRA, which represents international students, said the levy would erode student well-being and place an additional strain on individuals facing economic pressures. Its president, international student Wei Hong Liang, said the levy was another burden on a cohort already paying fees higher than domestic students and taxes to study. It won't be linked to our educational experience, so it's unfair, he said. It looks really bad. We've come here to study, not as customers. It's not good for cohesion or inclusivity, and it's bad culturally. No one on the Accord panel asked any questions of us. It's hard to find anything impressive in the interim report about how to improve the international experience. What can we expect the Accord? When can we expect the Accord? The University's Accord Ministerial Reference Group is holding its final meeting on Thursday before the report is handed down in in December. The federal government will publicly respond early next year. What comes from the report is hailed to bring the greatest reform to the university sector in more than a decade. Claire told a Guardian Australia it included a range of different ideas, some big, some small, some uncontroversial, some a bit spiky. I have been clear that government can't fund everything, he said. We can't do everything, but I'm asking the Accord panel to tell us what are the top priorities that we should try to implement now and over the next 10 years, and how do we fund them? Back to you, Jean. Thank you, Kim, and we'll have a bit of a break, and uh, then Dale has got a really interesting article for you. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. 
Subscribers are at the heart of our station, and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 03941983377 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Want to defend government schools? We are the dogs, D-O-G-S, Defenders of Government Schools. Every week on the Dogs Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. If you're a parent or if you're a kid or if you're involved in the school in any way whatsoever and you love your state school, give 3CR a call. We want to hear about these schools that we're defending. Brunswick Secondary State schools are great. Harkaway Primary School. Sunshine North Primary School. They're really concerned about the welfare of the kids and their growth as people as well as learning. Like you put on plays, you've got enrichment, you've got physical education, visual arts, languages, all that. In fact, is there a cooking? Actually an embracing of kids from disadvantaged backgrounds and with additional needs. More than half of your kids are from some of the poorest families in Australia. Yeah, definitely. That's the community and that's who we're servicing and that's that's who we welcome into the school. Outdoor play is linked to healthier and happier children. This, in turn, leads to better grades. In the weekly assemblies and stuff, they have a little thing, uh, you've been caught being good, and they have a a value of the week each week, and so it's not just words that is actually... So so what do the teachers do when it's a building site? Yeah, they kick themselves out of their own staff room and turn it into a classroom. Just a really nice culture and an emphasis on social skill building as well as learning. Quite a range of intellectual ability and kids with mental health diagnoses, refugee kids, kids who have not been in the country very long don't necessarily start off with a Positive great relationships with each other, with teachers and with the community. And they run a, a breakfast club. There's a recognition that some kids don't get breakfast and so there's, there's food on. If you are involved in a state school and it's a great school, we'd love to hear from you so we can talk about it and tell the world. Leave a message for the dogs at 3CR on 94198377. State schools are great schools. Great state schools. You're still listening to the Dogs Program. And Dale is a great admirer of Jane Callow, who's on Twitter and Facebook and all sorts of things promoting public education up there in Sydney. They're they're pretty bolshy up there in Sydney. And uh, Dale is going to uh, read us a very interesting article by Jane Callow entitled The Big Smoke. Over to you, Dale. Thanks, Jean. I've got an article by... Jane Caro from a website called The Big Smoke. So Jane Caro here is responding to the Australian Christian group that claims homeschooling is, quote, an alternative to woke and ideologically driven public education, end quote. That sounds very American. Australian Christian homeschooling, which describes itself as the oldest and largest provider of homeschooling support in Australia, recently advertised an event called Homeschooling, an alternative to woke public education. Later in the copy, it referred to government schools as offering woke and ideologically driven public education. 
I've been hearing a lot of this lately from conservative religious sources like the ACHS. It seems an attempt to pigeonhole public schools as hotbeds of supposedly left-wing ideology and woke indoctrination. This is an interesting accusation from an openly ideologically driven group. The Christian bit is in their name about a secular and inclusive system of schools established as part of Australia's development as a secular pluralist liberal democracy in the 1850s. To call secular public schools ideologically driven is to fundamentally, if you'll excuse the pun, misunderstand inclusivity. There is indeed an ideal at the centre of public education, and that is that it welcomes and serves all Australian children, regardless of who their parents are, what religious faith they may be or may not be have been raised in, how much money their family has, their skin colour, gender, sexuality, disability or anything else. It's also worth remembering that Australia has a compulsory education system. Children of school age must be in an approved and regulated educational setting until they reach 17. It is impossible to prioritise one religion over any other or indeed over no religion and be truly inclusive and compulsory. I invite the educators at ACHS to imagine for a moment if our compulsory education system decreed every school had to be Muslim or Jewish or Sikh. How would they feel about that? The same, I imagine, as non-Christian families might feel if every school had to be Christian. In public schools, faith is regarded as the family's business, not the school's. That's exactly how it should be if every child is to feel equally welcome. That's why supporters of secular public schools have fought for so long and so hard against the Howard-imposed Christian chaplaincy program. However good, kind and worthy many of these chaplains may have been, the program utterly misunderstood the central purpose of public education and worse, actively undermined it. To accept children and families of every faith and none as being of equal value and deserving of equal respect is an ideal worth defending. It's not at all anti-religious. As John Stuart Mill put it, to say secular means irreligious implies that all the arts and sciences are irreligious and is very like saying that all professions except that of the law are illegal. To put it in more biblical terms, perhaps, secular is about giving to Caesar what is Caesar's. And education, as opposed to indoctrination, is not about pushing one particular set of values, beliefs, or perspectives. At its best, education is about teaching the skills children need to think for themselves. Public schools should teach children how to think, not what to think. The ACHS is open about its desire to indoctrinate, as are all religious schools. Why else do they exist? Indeed, claims by such educators about the ideological agenda of public schools look very much like projection to me. They are accusing public schools of doing what they do. As British philosopher Stephen Law pointed out in his book, The War for Children's Minds, people would be horrified if anyone suggested established, 
establishing communist schools or white supremacist schools or conservative labor or green schools. Yet we accept without qualm and in this country generously publicly fund Catholic schools, Anglican schools, Scientologists, exclusive brethren, Muslim and Jewish schools. Who is indoctrinating whom, one may well ask. Let's turn to that worrisome little word, woke. It is consistently used as a slur by conservatives to shut down progressives in a debate. Apparently, if you don't want to think about the ideas someone else is putting to you, particularly if they're about suspending judgment or the automatic assumption of your own view's innate superiority, just call them woke. Game over. And what does woke actually mean? To me, it seems to have replaced the phrase politically correct in current discourse. No one is PC anymore, now they are woke. Given that, like PC, woke appears to be about accepting others as they prefer to be accepted, which I see as simple courtesy, perhaps it's more justifiably applied to public education than ideologically driven. Insofar as public schools are both accepting and respectful of all and every child from all and every background, they are indeed woke. You could almost say enlightened. Insofar as they come from a place of inclusivity, compassion and respect for difference, including the full equality of women and LGBTQIA plus students, teachers, families, I guess woke describes them. They are indeed awake to the destructive impact of prejudice, bigotry, indoctrination and inequality on people, but especially on children. But, and here is the crucial difference, while conservative religious leaders fear that acceptance of difference will weaken them, secular inclusive public schools know that acceptance of difference is not just their greatest strength, but also the only kind of love for their fellow human beings that is actually worth anything. Loving only those who see the world as you do may not be woke, but it sure as hell is ideological. As for homeschooling, growing in popularity, whether Christian or not, I'm not a fan. A parent's job is not to create a mini-me. It is to help your children learn how to be themselves, even if that is very different from you. Schools, in all their imperfection, rough and tumble, and yes, misery and sadness sometimes, enable children to meet their generation on more or less equal terms. If a child attends a public school, it also enables them to see that there are as many and varied ways to live a good life as there are people living lives. That your way is not the only way may be the seminal lesson of public schooling. As the poet Khalil Gibran puts it, your children are not your children. They are the sons and daughters of life's longing for itself. Let them go. Trust their strength of character and ability to find their way. Trust your own parenting and values. There will be stumbles and frights along the way, no doubt about that. But bringing up a generation of young people who've been taught they are special, but also somehow so fragile they are in need of protection from other children, will do none of us any good in the end, least of all them. And that was an article 
from Jane Caro in response to the Australian Christian group that claims in a very American voice that homeschooling is the alternative to woke and ideological public education. It's so contradictory and hypocritical. I think that's a great article from Jane Caro. Back to you, Jean. Well, thanks, Dale. I think you enjoyed reading that. Uh, I think that you like Jane Caro. She doesn't mince words, does she? But here we've got Kim again, who's got an AEU press release. That's an Australian Education Union press release about a recruitment campaign is needed, more than that's needed, for fixing teacher shortages. Over to you, Kim. Thanks, Jean. Uh, this article is called More Than Recruitment Campaign Needed to Fix Teacher Shortages and was written 31st of October of this year. The Australian Education Union today welcomed to the recruitment campaign launched by the Prime Minister but said a far greater investment in the teaching profession and public schools was needed to end chronic shortages and ensure teachers have the time and support to meet the needs of every child. AEU Federal President Karina Haythorpe said teaching is the greatest profession of all and positive recruitment campaigns are an important part of making teaching more attractive to the high-achieving young people we urgently need to become teachers. But nobody should think this is the answer to a recruitment and retention crisis that has been decades in the making. Nine out of ten public school principals across the nation reported teacher shortages this year, almost double the number in 2020. The Albanese government's own figures show demand for secondary teachers will exceed the supply of new graduates by 4,100 between 2021 and 2025. The number one issue driving teachers from the profession is unsustainable workloads. Only 13% of public school teachers say their workload is manageable and one in five leave within three years of entering the profession. Research released by the AEU last week showed teachers work extraordinarily long hours compared to other professions and get paid far less. We also have an ageing workforce and a steep decline in the number of people completing teaching degrees. On top of this, only 1.3% of public schools are resourced at 100% of the schooling resource standard, which is the minimum level governments agreed a decade ago was necessary to meet the needs of all the students. By contrast, 98% of private schools are funded at or above the SRS. The Prime Minister needs to do much more than launch advertisements. He needs to honour the government's commitment to end the underfunding of public schools. Investing in teachers and public schools is the only way to ensure we can recruit and retain the teachers we need. Full funding will give teachers more time and support to meet the diverse and complex needs of their students. It will also give them the confidence they can make a real difference without burning out. Public school principals and teachers are doing an amazing job, but they are being asked to do too much with too little. The Albanese government must sign funding agreements with state and territory governments within the next 12 months that put an end to the underfunding of public schools by 2028. Back to you, Jean. Oh, well, thank you very much, Kim, for keeping us up to date with where the uh, teachers' unions are at. But um, we'll have a quick break and then... We come back to go international. From every corner of the land, womankind arise! Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs.
erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio 855am and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. Teachers have had their qualifications, their pay, their pensions and their working conditions attacked relentlessly by this government. I'm a proud product of a government funded primary school education and of a government funded secondary school education. Australia is one of the richest and luckiest countries in the world and there's no reason whatsoever why we can't have the very best public schools in the world. It's still not good enough that kids with disability miss out. You're listening to The Dogs, the defence of government schools on 3CR. Well, you're still listening to The Dogs program, I hope, because Jeff, our roving expert, is going to take us to both America and the UK, and some very interesting material he's got for us indeed. Over to you, Jeff. Thanks, Jean. Uh, this is going to go to uh, Diana Ravitch, where she's linked us to an article from November 5th, 23, by a, an education uh, commentator called Peter Green, who in his uh, online blog, Education. He writes, the rules and charter innovation, a paired text exercise. Um, he says, uh, what he's found is that, that uh, a pro-charter school organisation has found a way to debunk charter school claims, which is very interesting. He says, it's an ordinary day when a pair of charter school boosters conclude that charters work best when a mean old government doesn't make them follow a bunch of rules and stuff. It's an ordinary day when someone points out they're full of regular non-innovative baloney. It is a less ordinary day when the baloney is being called out by a piece in the house organ of the Thomas Fordham Institute. The Thomas Fordham Institute, uh, just as an aside to dogs listeners, is a pro-charter school institute. So let's pretend for a moment, he says, that the question of regulations versus charter innovation is a real question. David Griffith, Griffith the Fordham Associated Director of Research, frames this as an old tension between autonomy and accountability which makes more sense than talking about charter school innovation because after a few decades of charter proliferation, the amount of innovation they have produced is somewhere between jack and squat. Despite being billed as laboratories of innovation, charter schools haven't come up with much of anything that public schools were not already well aware of. But the study of the relationship between innovation and regulation comes from two guys who are not exactly unbiased. Jay Green was previously at the University of Arkansas where he was occasionally willing to hit reformsters with uncomfortable truths. Nowadays he's at the Heritage Foundation where his job is to push preferred policies. Joining him is Corey DeAngelis, the education dude bro logging many miles across the country as he lobbies hard for Betsy DeVos's American Federation for Children. I'm old enough, he says, to remember when someone could have a civil conversation with DeAngelis on, online, but these days, attack dog and unleash of troll pack seems to be part of his job description. Ian Kingsbury is also in on this. He previously worked for cyber school giant Stride 
formerly K-12, and the Empire Centre. These days, he's a senior fellow at the Education Freedom Institute. Protecting and promoting school choice. D'Angelis is the EFI Executive, Executive Director, Director, and Green is the Managing Senior Fellow. In short, this trio of people whose profession it is, is pushing school choice, otherwise private schools. A caveat here, the article is in Educational Research and Evaluation, part of the family of Taylor and Francis journals, and if I want to read the whole article, it'll cost me 50 bucks. That's outside the Institute's budget of zero, so I'll be working strictly second-hand here. To study the relationship between regulations and innovation, they had to come up with a way to identify innovativeness. So this is what they did. They considered five factors. The pedagogical approaches used to teach what the academic that academic content, the types of students they sought to serve, whether they had delivered that education in person, virtually, or with a mixed approach, and whether they had a specialised theme, such as technology, art, or the environment. The judged 1,261 charter schools... Uh, were judged by cruising their websites and seeing how they stacked up on those five dimensions. That gave each school an innovation rating. Having manufactured the innovation rating, they stacked those up beside state ratings from the National Association of Charter Schools Authorisers, NACSA, which the researchers see as based on how heavily regulated charters are in the state. Aha, they declared, the more regulation, the less innovativeness in charter schools. For charter fans, it's simple. The more options mean they can move more product. And while I get their point, it's also true that we would have far more innovation in the food industry without all those government regulations about poison and stuff. Griffith makes a similar observation. Their technique of quantifying innovation gives the charter points for being unusual, and that's problematic. From a purely normative perspective, an obvious problem with the author's approach is that it is content neutral. So, for example, a school that was grounded in Satan worship would account as highly innovative, provided it didn't start a movement, as would one that imparted no knowledge whatsoever, as seems to be the case for many virtual schools. And he doesn't think innovation means what they think it means either, noting that many of their innovations aren't particularly new, but instead include Long-standing programs such as Core Knowledge, established in 1986, Waldorf, 1919, and Montessori, 1907. Not to mention single-sex education, Harvard, circa 1636, and project-based learning, the Pleistocene. That is Griffith's snark there, not mine. <laughs> so do they really mean programmatic diversity? Griffith said no, because their system really measures how similar a particular state's charter sector is to the national charter sector, rather than how many different types of schools a state's charter sector includes, which simply isn't the same thing as diversity or innovation, no matter how much the authors may want it to be. And some of that variation, he points out, can simply be a factor of location or the student population being served. New Jersey will not have the kind of rural-serving charters that Idaho might have for reasons having nothing to do with regulation. In short, Griffiths finds their whole design junk, all of which makes it hard to swallow the author's claim in a recent National Review article that we know heavy charter regulation has this negative effect on diversity and innovation in the charter sector because we actually measured it in our new peer-reviewed study. No, we don't. No, they didn't. And the mere fact that a study is peer-reviewed doesn't mean it should be taken seriously, all of which I agree with wholeheartedly, and it's a special day when I don't have to dismantle a reformster study because a Fordham guy gets there first. Oh, what a fun article that is about the absolute bollocks 
given to us as, as research by these uh, pro-charter organisations. Anyway, uh, now we're going to go across the ditch. Hang on a sec. And what we're going to do is pick up an, an article in The Telegraph on the 6th of November 23. And this one's by Anna Tizak. T-Y-Z-A-C-K, and it's why panicked private school parents are fighting each other for a place at the local comp, meaning comprehensive. So um, there's a few things. Prep schools in in um, in uh, the UK are part of the private school system, and the public ones are grammar schools and comprehensives. Um, so, and she goes, no wonder... The government school's website was down earlier this week. Labor's proposal to charge VAT on school fees prompted a deluge of primary school applications from private school parents. They want to nab a place at a good local primary before their child's classmates jump ship too. It's the same for secondary schools. Shiny SUVs lined the car parks at grammar schools and outstanding academies on assessment days this autumn. It's a movement known in parental WhatsApp group as Swamp the Comp. Being comprehensive. The idea being that if enough private school families descend on the same unsuspecting state school, they will have a positive effect on its performance. Labor's VAT policy has made everyone twitchy, says Troy Renard, a primary school teacher in Surrey who sends his two sons to a small local prep school. It's a misconception that private school parents are rich. At our school, there's no one turning up in yoga gear. The breakfast and after school clubs are full both uh, are full as both parents work flat out as doctors or lawyers to give their children the best start they can. We're already paying for state school places we're not using via our taxes and now we'll have to pay thousands more in fees. It's never made more sense to take up a state school place. Private schools are spooked as their fee-paying parents. A survey by Independent Schools Council found that 20% of parents would definitely withdraw their children from private schools if the policy, which Labor says could raise £1.7 billion to invest in state schools, comes into effect. The private sector, which represents about 600,000 children, or 7% of the school-age population, is still recovering from COVID, when many furloughed parents were forced to pull their children out, and is now faced with higher running costs and lower intakes. As families feel the pinch of higher living costs and mortgage rates, state till eight has become state to school secondary, and extra 20% on school fees could help keep them in the state sector forever. The glossiest, richest schools in the UK will be able to absorb some of the tax. It's rumoured that Cheam, a prep school in Hampshire, will pass on only 12-13% to 13% of the VAT to parents. Smaller, less wealthy schools will struggle to absorb so much. Michael Armitage, deputy-headed Amesbury School, a co-educational prep school on the Surrey, Hampshire and West Sussex border, worries for a small independent prep schools like his that prepares children for a wide variety of schools rather than being linked to a particular senior school. While numbers at Amesbury, which has a main building designed by Cenotaph architect Sir Edwin Lutons, are currently healthy, Armitage knows that many of his parents are already stretching themselves to breaking point to afford the £12,000 a year fee. That's, I just checked that before, that was about $23,000 a year. Other small independent schools are preemptively merging. Uh, Edgeborough School has recently fallen in the Charter House, while a few have given up entirely, such as Westwood School in Surrey, St Mary's Shaftesbury in Dorset, and Ashdown House, Boris Johnson's former prep school in East Sussex. Redcliffe Gardens School in Chelsea, meanwhile, will shut at the end of summer term. If Labor has their way, only the big, rich, independent schools filled with children of Russian billionaires will be left standing, Renard said. 
Even these might decide it's not worth the effort, though many of the big names in private education are propped up by private equity or education companies who will close them if their profits are threatened. Anyway, this uh, article goes on quite a while. I won't go through the whole thing, but the, the main point is that there's a bit of a rush on getting your kids out of newly expensive uh, private schools and into state schools because they deliver almost the same education, if not better education, than many of these private schools. Anyway, I'm going to pass it back to you, Jean, and uh, have a nice day. Oh, many thanks, Jeff. It's always so interesting, the work that you do for us. Uh, but now Andy's going to tell us the really good news story of the afternoon, our great state school. Over to you, Andy. Every week on the Doctor Program, we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. And this week's great state school of the week is Bainsdale Secondary College. Bansdale Secondary College remains the largest provider of education in East Gippsland with a climbing enrolment of approximately 1,180 students. The college is taking an increased percentage of students from the local catchment and beyond. There are three hubs operating. Wagamarin is the Year 7 hub, Warren is for Year 8 and 9 and Melgabilla is for Years 10, 11 and 12. Each hub has a wellbeing and student management team. There are a further 35 VCAL students at the Ngulu site, an alternative program off campus. Approximately half of the student population resides within the township of Bairnsdale, with the remainder travelling from surrounding areas in East Gippsland. Bairnsdale Secondary College is sited on Gunai Karnai land. The college is in partnership with the Clontarf Academy with the goal of improving participation of Koori young men. We also team with the Smith family to provide a Koori young women's program. A pastoral and health education program has an increasing emphasis. Technology, humanities, science, arts and sport are prominent across the curriculum and we have a highly respected instrumental music program with high-level music tuition for students. The college provides the community with an outstanding educational facility and looks forward to working with the community to enhance educational opportunities for students in Bansdale and surrounding districts. The college uses the values of respect, resilience and responsibility as guiding concepts to guide culture. The college believes all people can learn, grow and make a difference to the quality of our environment and others' lives. Knowledge is constantly evolving and we have a collective responsibility to equip all learners with skills that enable them to access this knowledge. The learning environment needs to be safe for learners to take risks, feel included and endorsed. Everyone is different and will have different beginning and end points, so learning must be customised. And a little bit of ACARA data for the school from the My School website. We've got uh, 1125 enrolled currently. The ICSIA value is below average, 943. Now, what this means is that um, of parents in the upper 25% income band, uh, make up 5% of the student body. Uh, the second level of the 50 to 75% parental income is 14% of students. And the third 25% is 30%, and the lowest quartile is 45%. So you've got, you know, 75% of students with um, 
parents with below average income. Really a school with many disadvantaged students, with 4% speaking a language other than English and 12% Indigenous students. Uh, in terms of finances, we've got recurrent grants from the Australian Government of $4.03 million and Victorian Government of $15.6 million. Fees and parental contributions add another uh, little bit over half a million, and there's about $275,000 in private contributions. This comes to about $17,996 per pupil, and we've got so a capital uh, investment of $3.2 million over three years. And if we have a look at their NAPLAN scores, everything is above average. Um, back to you, Jean. Well, thank you so much, Andy. Uh, those Bansdale children are very, very fortunate with the teachers they've got up there. I tell you, their NAPLAN results are off the charts. But um, not that that's all, everything. There are a lot of other very good things about that school. And um, we'd like to remind you that uh, the dogs, uh, you can find out a lot more about us on our website at www.adogs.info. And if you want to hear a bit more about us from 3CR, you can always go to our podcasts on the uh, 3CR website. But uh, from Dale and from Kim and from Jeff and above all from Andy and myself, it is bye for now. Says he.
You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.